Well, I just have to say it feels completely wonderful to be back here. You know, uh, it's been a, a bit of a journey when I left and a little bit of um, adventures and some health problems and some unsettledness, and it just feels wonderful to be back. Absolutely wonderful. So I've had good visit with my father, and I've had excellent rock time. I've spent some time with friends and my punks, and I feel really, you know, how my belly can relax and my shoulders can relax. It just feels very, very, very lovely. So... So thank you. Thank you for your help and your efforts to make this possible and for Bodhi Mind for welcoming me in such an open-hearted and loving way. It's, it's been, it's been, it's good. It's good. Um, the class that I did last year was on the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Frames of Reference. And this uh, sutta is one of the most, um, one of the most important suttas in the entire Pali Canon. So I have never been one who's spent a lot of time reading scripture, okay? It's not been my style. I've been much more a practitioner rather than a scholar. Even still, you know, when you have, like, the foremost or the most eminent scholars saying, this is the most important sutta in the entire scripture, you know, it's, like, worth paying attention to, you know, what's in it, what is it about. So the Satipatthana Sutta, Sati means mindfulness, and Patana is foundation. So like my name, Tama Santi, is the same, same root, foundation. So that's the foundation of mindfulness. And the first class talked about working with bringing awareness to the body, bringing awareness to the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and bringing awareness to the quality of the mind. So the first three foundations. And within that, there is a need to learn how to relax and to allow the body to come into alignment, how to begin to bring attention to these qualities of feeling and the qualities of liking and not liking, and pleasant, unpleasant, and then to open to the whole experience of the mind as in terms of you know, exalted or contracted or concentrated or unconcentrated or distracted. or And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the ability to work with what we're experiencing in our mind in terms of groupings. So it's in terms of themes of Dhamma. And so I, uh, I have here the sutta, and it talks about the fourth, the fourth one as the looking at the groupings of the five hindrances, looking at the groupings of the aggregates, looking at the groupings on the sixfold internal and external sense bases, looking on the seven factors of awakening, and looking at the Four Noble Truths. And these are all, in themselves, can be used as a whole practice. Each one of these, working with the aggregates is a whole practice. Working with the Four Noble Truths is an entire practice. And so what I thought I'd do is dedicate each night to one of these different ones. So tonight I'm going to work with the hindrances. Next Wednesday we'll be working with the aggregates. And the following week we'll be working with the Four Noble Truths as a way of working with this particular frame of reference as a way to look at one's experience. 
So one has to understand that this fits into a larger picture, and that's the reason why there are prerequisites for this class. Because if you just landed in here, never having been to anything, it'd be like, you know, what are you talking about? And how do you sit? And you know, what do you do with your breath? And how do you relax? So the assumption is, is, is that people would have listened to some of those talks or have had some time with me before. So I know some of you have been on retreat with me before and know. And I hope that the others will feel enough oriented from the talks that you heard that you can feel comfortable with where we start. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to um, spend a little bit of time talking about it on a kind of um, uh, a framework level, do a guided meditation, and then we'll have a break, we'll have a cup of tea, and then we'll come back for a discussion. So there is a case where a monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. And how does a monk remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances? There is the case where, there being sensual desire present within, a monk discerns that there is sensual desire present within me. Or there being no sensual desire present within, he discerns that there's no sensual desire present within me. He discerns how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and he discerns how there is the abandoning of sensual desire once it has arisen. And he discerns how there is no further arising of sensual desire that has been abandoned. It continues in the same way it's repeated for the remaining hindrances, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, anxiety, and uncertainty. So these are the five hindrances. And then the sutta goes on to say, in this way he remains focused internally on mental qualities in and of themselves, or externally on mental qualities in and of themselves, or both internally and externally on mental qualities in and of themselves. Or he remains focused on the phenomena of origination with regard to mental qualities, on the phenomena of passing away with regard to mental qualities, or the phenomena of origination and passing away with regard to mental qualities. Or his mindfulness that there are mental qualities is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and he remains independent, unstained, by not clinging to anything in the world. And this is how a monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. Okay. So the five hindrances are desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, and uncertainty or doubt. And what is... I mean, already there's this phenomenal level of what we can do with them in terms of see that they're arising begin to get a feeling for what were the conditions that supported their arising and being able to work with them so that they ease out, so that they stop, so that they end. Okay? When this refrain is, remains focusedly internally or externally, this phrase, focused internally or externally, has to do with our experience that we can relate to that of what is arising in our own minds and hearts and bodies and what we experience in relationship with others. So meditation is not only about going inward 
It's about going inward and being in relationship. So we can see something arising in ourselves, and we can see something arising in somebody else. And we can practice with something that's arising in ourselves, and we can practice with something that's arising in somebody else in the way that we are experiencing it. So the point of meditation and the point of the whole topic of exploration is to begin to get a sense of what is present, how to work with it, and how to allow things which are causing suffering to shift and change so that we can move towards less suffering, towards more ease, towards more joy, towards more happiness, towards more peace. So on some levels, it's pretty straightforward. But when we look at the enormous range of what our human experience is and the kind of ways that we get caught out with different things, it takes a fair amount of sophistication as well as skill to be able to pick up the variety of experiences that we have and and bring a wise attention to that without getting stuck or caught out or all the rest of that. Now, for decades, I have never spoken about the five hindrances because I had the feeling that if you're not very careful, there tends to be a a kind of a hidden or an unspoken judgment that having any of these things is bad, that you're not a good Buddhist if you have anger or if you have desire, you know, or if you're tired or you're sleepy, you know. And so... And also because many of us have uh, like quite uh, rich explorations in coming into healthy relationships with anger. And part of that is to allow it, not to disallow it. Um, that I've been, I had been cautious for, for many, many, many years about talking about the hindrances because I didn't want to convey... Um, a sense of putting down or judgment or that there was something wrong if that's what you're experiencing. And I know particularly in the relationship with anger, you know, my own life experience has been decades of untangling pretzels around this and I have gone through specific practices where I've had to give special permission to allow myself to feel anger in order to work through certain things. And so when we open up the topics of the hindrances, we also navigate a territory of some psychological sophistication in terms of our own personal conditioning and what is needed in order to move into health. Okay? And this is true with many of them. All right? So, for example, with sexual desire. So certainly, you know, in terms of a mind that's obsessing on sexual desire, we can see the kind of suffering that that causes. But we can also see that when a person is healing from sexual abuse, they absolutely have got to give themselves a very wide berth around everything that arises in their minds and how they relate to it so as not to add any extra injury on top of something which was deeply difficult and traumatic. 
So there are Buddhist ways of working with things, and there are psychological uh, levels of astuteness and understanding. Certain kinds of conditioned factors give rise to certain experiences, and we need to have a baseline of wisdom and compassion as we approach this topic, rather than a kind of black and white, that it's good or bad, and that if it's there, we need to do something in order to get rid of it, right? So that's not helpful. We need to open up this topic with some level of sophistication from the onset that we are able to receive the territory that's arising as well as the context in which it's arising so that we can respond skillfully. Having said that, we can begin to look at what do you do with anger, what do you do with desire, what do you do with sloth and torpor, what do you do with restlessness and anxiety, what do you do with doubt. And each one of them has slightly different elements. So one of the things about anger is it has this very strong effort of pushing away. You know, it doesn't want, it doesn't, it doesn't want. And often it, it, there's, an, there's an energy of harming. There's an interest or an inclination to hurt. And so what one needs to do is to recognize that the fundamental energy of anger or ill will is to separate, to push away, and to hurt and to harm. And so on the most fundamental level, what is needed is the opposite, is to embrace, to welcome, and to be harmless. And so that doesn't mean that one um, tries to annihilate the anger But what that does mean is that when one is experiencing anger, one makes a real clear commitment not to act from it and to be very careful when one's motivation is colored by the desire to harm that any acting from that, either verbally or in action or sometimes even in thought, will have an uh, an effect that will carry the residue of that harmful intention. Okay? So this sutta looks at looking at how does this arise. And so one of the things that we can notice is that if somebody said something to us that really made us angry, if we think about what they said, it winds us up. All right? So how we place our attention is going to affect how we are relating to the anger. So... The skillful thing is not to loop around what it was that was said that made you so angry. What is skillful is to let it cool down until there is a little bit more equanimity and discernment. And then from a place of discernment, that might be a time for contemplation and reflection as to what is an appropriate action in those circumstances. So one of the things that happens in a Buddhist community, and I certainly can say that it happened a lot in our, in our nuns' community until we got more sophisticated, was is that we had this kind of sense that if you were angry, that was bad. All right? But you can only just imagine what goes on in living in a community, and there's times that are things that happen that are absolutely infuriating. Okay? And it's not okay to superimpose the ideal of how you should be on top of the reality of how things are. And so we also had to learn how to let ourselves feel what we were feeling and then be skillful in in how and when we would talk about it or under what circumstances. But from our own side, you know, one of the things that we need to do is we need to see what is it that's activating us 
And until we have a little bit more equanimity and discernment into being able to work with it, to not focus our attention there, to bring our attention to another place of focus. So then we can see that it can begin to um, even out and then subside. Okay. There are ways of contemplating with anger that can help us begin to work with it so that we are not so likely to be activated the next time. So, you know, one of the things that is uh, a very powerful reflection is that when we um, want to wake up, we normally regard our teachers as the um, worthy of respect because they are helping to illuminate to us the places where we get stuck And by illuminating the places where we get stuck, they are inadvertently helping us to see where we need to work in order for us to be free, all right? But oftentimes we associate our teachers as these lovely people who are, um, have perfectly pure motivations and who have only our best interests in their heart. But a teacher is anybody who shows us where we're stuck. And a teacher is anybody who gives us an opportunity to wake up. And so if somebody does something that winds us up to the nines or through the roof, they're our teacher. And if we change our focus of attention from thinking that they're an idiot and why should they have done what they did that made us so angry, to realizing that this is an opportunity for waking up and this is an opportunity to see where I'm stuck and this is an opportunity to let go somewhere, then our relationship with them changes Because in the same way that it's easier to regard people that we respect with some degree of kindness, if we can see in that that there's the possibility of transformation and growth in oneself and what has emerged is an opportunity, then we feel completely different. Then this is some kind of a horrendous thing that has happened that shouldn't have happened and it shouldn't have happened because if this person was behaving even a fraction the way they were supposed to have behaved, then there's no way that this would have happened. All right? So part of the way of working with this is to reframe it in our own minds so that we have another kind of leverage underneath the stuff that normally winds us up so much so that we don't feel so activated. Yeah. So with anger, the basic energy is a movement to separate, a movement to distance, a movement to disconnect, and a movement to harm. And the basic response is the opposite, to welcome, to embrace, and to allow. With desire, desire is the energy to grasp and to cling and to hold close. And so we have the sense that, you know, if I get what I want, then somehow that's where my happiness is going to come from. And it can be an object, it can be a position, it can be authority, it can be a love relationship, it could be physical pleasure, it could be sexual pleasure. You know, there's no end to what we can desire. But the mechanism of desire is the same, independent of the object of what we're desiring. And so with desire, what is needed is the ability to have some space to recognize that no matter what we are desiring, it's very unlikely that it's going to bring any lasting happiness because often the object's Anything that we can name or touch is something which is subject to change. Because it's subject to change, it cannot last. 
because it cannot last, it cannot bring lasting happiness. So when we see the mechanism of desire and see how we can get stuck in that, then the mechanism that's needed is to bring some space and some reflection around that this cannot bring what the fantasy of fulfillment is saying we want it to bring. So the discernment needs to enter into the equation so that we have more perspective on what's happening. So, again, you know, in the Theravada tradition, a lot of emphasis is placed on sense restraint. And so for young monastics, for the first five years or seven years of their life as monastics, we have very clear boundaries about what we do and what we don't do and who we interact with and who we don't interact with and protecting it, the situation, so as to support less confusion and less desire. Unfortunately, the vinya is exclusively heterosexually oriented and so if that's not your orientation you don't get the support and per, to, to reflect if if your orientation is different than that so then it takes the maturity of the individual or the community to be able to differentiate between affection which is supportive and affection which is inclining towards desire and towards attachment and you know for each of us that's a, an exploration it's a journey yeah. But the basic idea is, is is that when we're attached, when we're grasping onto something, when we want something and feel that that is going to be the way that we are going to be whole or fulfilled or satisfied, when desire is present, we need to recognize desire is present and see it as such. And in seeing it as such, we can learn to release the grip of it so that it's not something that drives our life in such a strong way. Sloth and torpor, this incredible drowsiness, this incredible tiredness, again, we need to be somewhat sophisticated because we can be tired and exhausted because we're sick or because we're depressed or because the food that we're eating we're allergic to or because the weather, you know, there's been a storm that's coming up, and the storm, when the pressure comes, sometimes our energy drops out, or because um, uh, we're resisting looking at something in ourselves or in a circumstance, or there's some kind of a new learning that's emerging that's hard to wake up to. And so, you know, if we're sick, it's what is needed is different than if what's happening is an inability to be present with what's arising. So if we're sick, we need medicine and we need to rest. You know, If there's a storm that's coming and the pressure has dropped and our energy systems drop out as a result of that, certainly there's a way of working against it, but we have to realize that it's completely impersonal, that it's not anything that we're doing mentally or volitionally, but it's actually just a natural cycle that happens because of different elements in the way that they're affecting each other. Okay? When it is the result of resistance, then what's needed is to begin to bring the sense of safety or the sense of, of ground that one has the ability to receive what needs to be accepted. So sloth and torpor, though it has the same characteristic of a dullness and a dropping and an inability to stay focused and an inability to stay present, it can come from very different reasons. And because it comes from different reasons, it can mean 
then it requires very different responses. In the tradition that I come from, we had a habit or a practice of meditation vigils. And so tomorrow night is a full moon meditation vigil up at the place where I used to live up on Columbia Road. So we'll go from 6.30 until midnight. And in the monastery, we would go from 7.30 until uh, 5 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. And so it's not possible for most of us to have that kind of extended meditation without having tremendously varied mind states. And sometimes we'd be very bright and energetic, and sometimes, you know, we'd have the nods. But the, you know, the, the, the American ideal is to maximize the ideal conditions and then fight like hell when they're not there, you know. And the forest tradition is to, is to, is to maximize the challenging conditions so that you can learn to get the strength and the perseverance and the skills to work with them so that you can be peaceful no matter what's going on, okay? So if the only time we meditate is when we felt energetic, when we felt uh, peaceful, when we weren't hungry or tired or sick, when there was nothing in our body that was painful, it's like, all right, how much are we meditating, you know? And so this other approach is to work with all conditions and to even do special practices that elicit challenging mind states as a way of learning how to work with them and not be bullied or intimidated by them. And of course, with everything, you can do things with a motivation which is skillful or a motivation which is not skillful, you know. And we have plenty of stories of things of people did that were, you know, a few yards off balance, you know, a few courts low. And they had to deal with the with the consequences, you know, with knee surgeries and cracked open skulls and because, you know, one person was doing all these special practices and and fell unconscious and flipped off the asana, which was four feet high, and hit his head and broke his head open, you know. So Ajahn Chah said to him, you know, basically, just chill out, just take it easy. (laughs) So, you know, you can do anything with wholesome or unwholesome reasons. You can do anything in a way that is actually conducive to the heart opening or to actually dismantles your body, the ground underneath you. And so, you know, it's not like there's a set thing. Yes. May I ask a question? Please, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sloth and torpor, how is that related to laziness? Sloth and torpor is the energy sinking. Laziness is the unwillingness to apply oneself. So you're not talking about laziness? No. They're slightly different. Oh, sometimes when your energy drops out, you don't have the energy to apply yourself. But... I've heard somebody say that laziness has two forms. One form is is that you're so busy you can't do what's needed. And the other form is is that you don't apply yourself because you're distracted or because you don't um, you don't see the interest or the energy to do it. And in our lifestyle, I would have to say that if we were going to look, that's probably the first one that many of us suffer from, where our lives are so totally inundated with stuff that it often means that the priorities that we have or the things that we really value get uh, sidelined because we're engaged in a lot of urgent but non-essential activities. Doubt. You know, doubt is a very interesting one. 
Because on one level, when you look at doubt, you know, it's doubt, there's a paralysis with doubt. You know, I can't decide this, I can't decide that. And it's often very rare that you can resolve doubt with thinking. Usually one has to resolve doubt by bringing it to a completely different level. Yeah. So that's the kind of conceptual doubt. But then in the Zen tradition, they have this statement, you know, small doubt, small awakening, big doubt, big awakening, complete doubt, total awakening. And this has to do with the mechanism of the conceptual mind itself, that when the conceptual mind is no longer our reference point, then there's the ability to open up to something very different. So with doubt, one of the things which is really helpful is to bring one's attention back to where one has confidence. And let it sit there. And not engage in the proliferation of the thinking around it, but to just let one's attention rest where there's confidence. See what happens there. So, in each of these circumstances, we have a manifestation of something which can take on many different forms, but has a particular energy which is common. And in each of these circumstances, there's a general kind of response that's needed. So, with the energy of anger, what's needed is to embrace and to welcome. With the energy of desire, what's needed is some equanimity and some steadiness and some perspective. With the energy of sloth and torpor, what's needed is to brighten the energy, to brighten one's mind states. And one can do that by looking up or to pull one's ears or to stand up or to take deeper breaths. You know, sometimes I have heard people do funny things like they put a matchbox on their head so that if they tilt their head, it goes flying and they hear the sound. You know, and I've heard people, you know, doing things like meditating on the edge of a of a, of a water, like on a, like at the edge of a lake or at a well, you know. So just, you know, you, you know, those kinds of things. So that there's a, there's something startling that will happen. I've known of people who've walked backwards, you know. So as a way of stirring up the energy. But again, one needs to remember that it really is helpful to look at why is there sloth and torpor in the first place. Because if what one is dealing with is something which needs acceptance, then the amount of effort that we put into bringing our energy up is only going to be beneficial when we have accepted what needs to be accepted. So perhaps that will be enough for an introduction. Can I just check and see if there's any questions that arise from what I've shared? Yes, please. Um, your last comment about looking at the, the foundations maybe of why, would you say that would hold for all of the five that you you'd need at some point to look at maybe what the, what the issues of desire are, what the issues of anxiety are, or anger? I often work that way, you know, for myself. I, I tend to, things resolve for me a lot more um, completely when I understand what's actually going on, Okay. Um, there are certainly plenty of people who meditate where they're not actually interested in, in, in the issues that gave rise to the anger in the first place. They just work with the anger as an arising phenomenon. So they don't look at what's going on. Okay? I know from my own personal experience 
because I've had such a kind of um, strange relationship with anger, and what had happened, or it still can, but less now, is that I would very quickly go into a very regressed state of mind. So I would end up being in the, like, the consciousness of a very young child. When I would recognize that that's what was happening, then my ability to deal with it would then be much more um, attuned to what was needed because I had to deal with it from, from the perspective of a young child, both the person who could see that as well as the young child who was experiencing that. And when I could do that, then it could shift very quickly. But if I would sit there and assume that I was an adult and I had to relate to it as an adult and resolve it as an adult, it could go on and on and on and on and on because I was never actually touching what was actually happening. So for me, this was more than the issue. This was actually the psychological framework that this was being experienced in and therefore it required a certain level of care in what was an appropriate response. Because the way you deal with a two-year-old is very different than the way you deal with an adult. You'd never say to a two-year-old, go sit in the room by yourself, don't talk to anybody, and figure it out by yourself. There's just no way anybody would say that to a two-year-old. And yet, if I hadn't twigged that that's what was happening, my training in meditation would incline me to say to myself, just go take myself to myself in my room by myself, sort it out alone. And absolutely it was not what was needed. This, uh, this idea about embracing the anger, what do you mean by once you start to become angry, to understand it? You know, for myself, my own, my own experience was once I understood what was leading up to the anger, in this case, in my case, frustration, once I understood that the next step after frustration is anger, and I started to understand that more, then the anger become less and less. And then I could embrace it at that point, and that the person that was the object of the anger all of a sudden become more an object of love. Yes. You know, so it switched the whole thing. That's right. And the whole, you know, just like, I don't know, like a transformation or right. a flip, whatever right. it was. Yeah. But you see, at some point there had to be a moment of acceptance. And the acceptance usually preceded the recognition that it was frustration. Of the frustration. Right. And so it's the acceptance that I'm talking about, which is the which is the embracing. That's what I'm talking about. And then that embracing then allows the transformation to understand what's really happening. And it's it's incredible to recognize how these things don't have a permanent fixed identity. You know, like I I remember there was an, uh, a senior nun and she used to have conversations in doorways all the time and it used to drive me nuts because you couldn't move through the doorway because she'd be standing right in the middle having these profoundly deep, meaningful conversations with people in the doorway. And, and I remember just, I was just incredibly frustrated. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I just thought about this place as a mental hospital? Instead of this as being a senior nun, if I thought about this as a mental hospital, 
And I thought, you know, here's somebody who's got problems, but look at how well she's doing. <laughs> look at how much she has to offer and how many people she interacts with and how helpful she is. And then my heart was just flooding with compassion, you know. So what had happened? I changed the framework, you know. Yeah, and I think in fact that that object of anger, like I say, becomes love, and it becomes your teacher too, because right. now you can see more or less what's bouncing off that person. That's right. And all of a sudden, no longer an antagonist, but a teacher. That's right. That's right, right. So when we can switch things from being the things that we want to get rid of as fast as possible or kill to recognizing this is where our teaching and our teachers are that we need to actually honor. It doesn't mean that we put our heads on the chopping block or we let people walk over us, but it does mean that it gives us more capacity to be with something that we otherwise don't really um, want to deal with. So I remember reading a set of um, Don Juan's uh, books, yeah, and Carlos was speaking to Don Juan, and he was beside himself because he was in a situation where there was somebody who was in power who wanted to do him in. So he had his he had the ability to make decisions about him, and he wanted to to kill him. He wanted to hurt him. He wanted to kill him. So Carlos was like you know kind of crumpled and you know defeated and, and deflated and he goes to, to Don Juan and he's describing this terrible situation. I mean, it's horrendous, a very abusive situation. And Don Juan says, really? Really? He really wants to kill you? Really? Really? Isn't that wonderful? It is so wonderful. He wants to kill you. And what he was getting to was is, is that as a spiritual warrior, there are very few circumstances that we have where we are in a position where another person has that kind of control over us and has that ability to harm us, okay? And as a spiritual adept, to be able to engage in something that for most of us would be the worst possible thing that you could ever imagine and not lose your mindfulness, not give up your power, not flip out, freak out, or or go ballistic, but be still and centered and full of clarity and wisdom and compassion? Like, how often do we get to test ourselves that way? All right? So in that circumstance, in that story, he went back into this totally abusive situation with his eyes wide open, making use of it as a practice experience. He did it with full knowledge of what he was doing and with full Um, willingness to meet the circumstance as a practice experience which is entirely different from what people are experiencing when they are victims of abuse Okay, so I don't want in any way to um, diminish the kind of damage that happens when people are victims of abuse but what I can say is, is that because of the way that we can choose certain things, we can enter into circumstances that ordinarily would be very challenging, very difficult. When we do it with choice, when we do it with clarity, when we do it with resource, when we do it with understanding about how our own minds work, we can allow that to be something which is transformative rather than damaging and destructive.
But then you need to know when it's time to go. You know, because when the lessons are done, you get out of there. There's no more need to learn. It's time to go.